This evening, we're going to take a look at character categories. And uh, I, I hope it's going to be fun. Um, I think it will be fun. I have uh, I've picked six, six particular categories. Obviously, I can't do all 14 in one night. We will be falling asleep here. Um, uh, but we will talk it through uh, at what, what the examples are. And I've, I've picked examples for specific reasons. I'll, I'll tell you when we get there. Uh, some, like for instance, uh, uh, some adversary characters in major motion pictures are pretty obvious, right? And therefore, I picked one that isn't obvious. So you can see the other side of it too, okay? Now then, perspective. Eric does like the Greeks, doesn't he? Um, what is character you know, in a screenplay or a novel? And they are both important because they are very different, and we'll get to that in a second. About 400 BC, uh, what's his name? Theophrastus. Theophrastus was a Greek philosopher. And he sat down and made up this list. It was about, you know, 70 types long, but made up a list of types of people based upon predominant, uh, uh, predominant attitudes. Flatterer, garrulous, boor, reckless, superstitious, and so forth. I'm not quite sure why he did it, because he was a philosopher, not a dramatist. But it just turned out that one of his students was uh, named uh, Menander, and Menander, as some of you obviously, uh, uh, whoops, Menander went on to make a career out of writing somewhere around 100 comedy plays based upon these character types, using the types of people in exaggerated form to create comic characters. Um, Menander basically was the first comedy writer, first playwright comedy writer in, in history, as far as we know. Uh, and he did quite well. He had a good career at it. But attitude types do not relate to plot function. And what we must concern ourselves with, and obviously as I eliminate other possibilities here, we're talking about plot function. And that is where we go to the 14 character categories. Early on, I mean, this was, uh, Moliere was doing this, you know, almost 2,000 years later using the types, the exaggerated types, all of which was swell. But the plots were not necessarily dependent upon those characters feeding into them. Okay. I just typed in character categories and Googled it, and this is what came back. <clears throat> this is contemporary. This is a few months ago. Round character, flat character, stock character, one-dimensional, three-dimensional. But again, this has nothing to do and misses completely story purpose. And that's what we're looking for, the story purpose of characters. Because the storytelling function of a character in film is critical. It's absolutely critical, more, even more critical than it is in novels, right? So every character present in your screenplays and scripts, other scripts, they have to be there to serve the plot, the story, and moving it forward. 
and there's only two ways that they can serve a story. <coughs> uh, they either are there to help or to hinder the progress of the hero. That's it. And let me tell you, this is, this is why that is true, okay? And then we have to back up a bit. And uh, I, have, I have had lots of students through the years who come in with attitudes towards story and character that they have learned from teachers and professors of English and of literature. And in other words, from uh, novels. And the difference between novels and motion picture visual storytelling couldn't be m more extreme and, and, and separate, absolutely separate. First of all, here is how a novel works. Number one, it is subjective, subjective. Uh, they are, uh, it is always an interior monologue, which means there is a narrator writing it or talking it and talking to you, the reader. That makes it subjective. It is the opinion of one person, basically. And even when the story is written in um, uh, third person or third person omniscient, you know, like the voice of somebody looking down from heaven upon the scene and describing everything and then jumping from inside the head and feelings of one character to inside the head and feelings of another character, that, too, is completely subjective because some god is narrating it. Two, in writing, in novels, you've got sentences and paragraph and they can only, uh, paragraphs, and they can only focus on one thing at a time. One, a sentence describes the sunset and then describes <coughs> the way the trees are blowing in the breeze or whatever it is, and then the next single thing gets addressed. One thing at a time. So what happens is, well, it only works in that the reader provides everything else from your own memories, your own, oh yeah, I remember, and then you kind of fill in the details and help create that fictional world of the novel in your own imagination. And that too is subjective. The whole process here of reading and enjoying a, a, a novel and experiencing that story is subjective. Three. Novels can take side trips. They don't have to be read in one sitting. They can and we'll try War and Peace. You're going to be having several sittings to get through it. Yes. But um, that means there's less focus on plot. Not always, but in general, it is looser. It is looser. The whole plot thing is looser. Um, let me see. Uh, uh, I was just thinking about uh, Ernest Hemingway book, but for whom the bell tolls? Anybody read it? Grand total of one? Okay. <laughs> I know, it's another era, an of another era. Uh, I, was, I was a Hemingway a fan when I was in my teens, you know, and I compulsively read them all kind of stuff. But for whom the bell tolls is a really great book. <clears throat> but the main story, it, it takes place in uh, 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 revolutionary Spain in the mid-30s, just before World War II. Uh, Francisco Franco, uh, as a dictator, to, had taken over Spain, and the rebels were in the mountains fighting to return to democracy. And that's the main plot. Uh, uh, but there is one character in it by the name of Pilar, a woman by the name of Pilar, 
as I recall, she was, um, she's about 50 years old. I can't remain, you know, that's the image that's still, the subjective image that still stays with me all these years later, right? But um, she's taking all the risks of all the other people. She risks death every day when they go into battle and so forth. But Hemingway grew so fond of her that for almost 90 pages, he takes a sidestep and writes her entire story and her, her entire backstory. And it's wonderful. I mean, it's him writing prose, which is wonderful by definition. And then some 80 or 90 pages later, he comes back to the main plot and continues. You cannot do that in visual storytelling. That is a, a, a quality only available in novels, in, the, in literature form. You can't do that. Plot can be looser because it's not limited to two hours only and has to be seen in, in one sitting. Describes feelings and thoughts that, you know, the narrator goes from inside the feelings and thoughts of one and describes them and describes the other. So we can subjectively know people's emotions. Okay, now here's the movies. <clears throat> Film is exactly the opposite. Visual storytelling um, is as utterly objective as novels are subjective. When we go into a theater and sit down and the movie begins, everybody in that audience sees exactly the same thing. Every, everybody. There is, we don't bring our own imagination to it. We see the exact same thing. Everything has been decided. The set, the, the lighting, uh, the costumes, the blocking, uh, uh, everything is taken care of and does not require our imagination to feed over it. <clears throat> and secondly, instead of one thing at a time, motion pictures give to us a deluge of information all at once, hundreds of individual there's motion, and there's color, and there's speech, and there's action, physical action, and it's all happening at once. And that's why it's such an overwhelming art form. It is the most overwhelming and per, you know, personally involving art form so far that there is in the world because of this deluge of information. No side trips. You got, basically, you got approximately two hours to tell your story beginning to end, and then everybody goes home. It's not done in, in small little bites like you would read a novel uh, over time. It has to be complete in two hours, and that means no side trips, none. And because it is utterly objective, that means the only way we learn, really, about character is by what they do. Behavior in film is character. In novels, it can be described. We can go inside, and you know this and that is going on inside, and such. You don't, you can't do that. I'm not saying that there isn't dialogue, and people can say "ouch" because they're feeling pain or something. But for us to know it and to share it, it has to be behavior which can be seen, three-dimensional, visual, and that is why when you build a story, a visual story, you are providing the plot that will allow your characters, but specifically your, your key character, to take this journey and demonstrate who they are 
and demonstrate how they grow and how they change by the end. That is very com completely different, really, than, uh, than novels. Okay. Therefore, all characters must serve the ends of, in that two hours, making that hero's journey, his or her trip through whatever your story is, they must feed into that, and they have to either help or hinder the hero. And simultaneously be providing conflict, visible, present tense conflict. So that's how we arrive at the 14 character categories. Now, you saw this last time. <clears throat> uh, here it is again. And I just want to run these past you one more time. These are in the book. No, these are in the book. Don't worry about that. But uh, this is the first half of them. And tonight I've got examples of hero, adversary, love interest, sidekick, mentor, and endangered innocent. The gate guardian we will save. It's, it's usually more of a lesser part than the others. And uh, we'll save it for another time. And then these are the other seven. And these we will get to over time as we analyze the pictures that we're going to be looking at, right? Although I'll say off, uh, off the top of my head, adversary agent is extremely important because most adversaries have help. And that help, the ones who do the bidding of and take the orders from, in one way or the other, the adversary, they are adversary agents. And there's various ramifications of who that can be, but that is the purpose, storytelling purpose they serve. And down here, it's not really last on the list in terms of importance at all. I don't know how it arrived down here. But the helper follower allies of the hero are people who do the same but for the hero. Helper followers, uh, there's all kinds of different ones. Um, Ocean's Eleven, that's a one-hero movie. Danny Ocean is the hero. He has a sidekick, Rusty, that's another category we're going to take a look at. And then he has his team, all those other guys, the, the, the terrific smaller parts. But they are key to the enterprise, and they are all uh, helper-follower allies. OK. <clears throat> Beyond the 14 characters, of course, you have atmosphere characters, the under fives or the extras. They don't really have a category. I haven't given them a category here because they do not serve a direct plot storytelling function. What they are, saying it crassly, I suppose, are props. They are there to make the world, they're there for verisimilitude, to make the world, this fictional world, for this particular story feel real. And sometimes they have a few lines, you know, the, the sassy waitress who, you know, has a quick, quick, cute quip and drops the bill and we never see her again. She has no story function. It's just milieu, just to give it depth. Uh, and they don't advance the plot. And something else that's useful about having the character categories is once you assign a role to one of your characters and pick them out of, because all of these can provide subplots, all of them. Uh, once you pick a, a particular individual and you paint them and create them and make them three-dimensional, 
And once they are in a category, they have to stay in that category. You can't change categories. Okay? I, it, when it happens, and I've seen it happen a few times, and it just destroys movies. Um, what's it called? The Deep End? Anybody seen The Deep End? Tilda Swinton, I think, stars in it. Well, that alone tells you something. <laughs> um, it starts out very interesting. And it's about Tilda Swinton, who, who, whose son, who is, uh, you know, uh, late teens and applying to college, and something happens, and, and then all of a sudden it looks like it's going to ruin his entire life. And there's bad guys and gangsters trying to blackmail mom, and she's running around trying to fix it and set it all right. But a very strange thing happens at the midpoint of that movie is mom just kind of gives up and falls in a frump. And one of the adversary agent characters who works for the bad guy at the midpoint decides to take up the flag of hero. And all of a sudden, the mantle of hero changes from her to someone else. And he is the one who goes forward and resolves the story. And it doesn't work. It eliminates the emotional connection we have with the characters. It's changing horses midstream. And psychologically for your audience, it just doesn't work. We talked about the, uh, the nine hero uh, sympathy qualities. That's the list. This is also in the book. Um, I have put stars there by five of them. Because I believe at a minimum, Every hero, he or, he or she, needs to have at least these five qualities. One or two more wouldn't hurt, but they need to have these. You, this allows your audience in. It allows them to identify with, at least temporarily, and they don't have to be you know, just somebody pure and good. We don't much like pure and good people all that much. They're not very interesting. Um, but they have uh, facets and qualities. But one of those qualities is we have to be able uh, to like them to, up to a certain degree. Uh, and that goes for all kinds of heroes. And there are a number of different kinds of heroes. All heroes must be, at the very least, empathetic. And I, I just put on you know, five different kinds of heroes here, the cat, some categories for which this remains true, just to prove the point. Anti-heroes, a lot of people ask me about that. But Eric, Eric, this is an anti-hero. They can't be, they can't be uh, uh, sympathetic. Well, they need to be if it's going to work. Remember a girl with the dragon tattoo, Lizbeth? Has anybody seen her? Mm -hmm. yeah. OK, OK. Starting to worry there. Oh, yes. Good, good. But Lizbeth is this dark, self-contained. She lives in her isolated emotional bubble because she has been hurt so much since childhood. She is a profoundly wounded person. But she still has six out of nine of the uh, sympathy characters, characteristics. Um, tragic hero, Scarface, Tony Montana. A formal tragedy, that's King Lear, that's Macbeth, that is uh, a contemporary, that's uh, Scarface. And these are otherwise admirable heroes who have one fatal flaw within them that they cannot correct. 
the, the character growth is not possible for this person, and that becomes the admonishment tale of we know that they will be destroyed and they will be dead by the end of the movie. But it kind of is kind of sad because we know what they could have been, too, if they had had that one thing fixed within themselves. The tragic hero, Tony Montana in Scarface, tragic hero, out of the nine sympathy tools, he has eight of them. And it works quite well. Catalyst hero. Uh, have any of you seen an old movie called the In the Heat of the Night? Good. A couple, anyway. It's a terrific movie if you ever want to spend a nostalgia night. Uh, uh, Sidney Poitier plays uh, Virgil Tibbs. Uh, actually, the part that, that, that year, I think it was, uh, uh, that was the movie In the Heat of the Night that took Best Picture. Did My, he win too? I think he did. Yeah. I think he did. He was the first. Right. Right, right. Uh, no, no, there were, there were some Best before. Actor. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Although, I think he won. Oh, maybe that came later. Lilies of the Field? I think that was. I think he could have won. I think he did. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> History. Uh, he, he is a highly skilled uh, uh, murder investigator for the police, homicide detective from New York, very sophisticated, very good at what he does. He's in the Deep South for some reason, and he ends up in, in jail. He gets arrested for something, of course, that he didn't do, all of which is outrageous. And uh, uh, he is very blustery and terrific about, you know, and you can see Sidney Poitier playing it. It's great. They call me Mr. Tibbs. And that became the movie that followed this one when he became such a popular character. I think they made two or three more movies with him uh, uh, as the lead. And then there is the redneck, cracker, small town, deep south sheriff. Right? And that was played by Rod Steiger. Steiger. Rod Steiger. Yeah, great character actor. <clears throat> and of course, you know. He's as cracker as they get. And uh, so naturally, you've got this wonderful personal conflict between these two people. But the one who does the growing and character growth is the sheriff and not the, the hero, not uh, uh, Virgil Tibbs. And that's the catalyst hero. That, there are those kinds of heroes who do not personally change, but bring about change in others. Uh, uh, trickster hero, uh, Axel Foley. Remember uh, uh, Eddie Murphy in Beverly Hills Cop? Remember that old series? And he is, uh, the trickster hero is, is, is funny, energetic, and always sticking it to the man, you know, to use old terms. Um, and very snide and playful and jester-esque with authority. That's the trickster hero. And there's been a number of of, of movies like that of the, with that character in them. But they, too, need to be sympathetic. And then the men mentally challenged hero, that's a whole subgenre, too. That's not too hard, because, be before, because of their disadvantages going in, they, we're automatically sympathetic for them. Uh, uh, Forrest Gump, uh, I Am Sam, uh, Dumb and Dumber, those kind of, you know, the mentally challenged characters are natural. Uh, uh, we are naturally affectionate toward them. 
but there's other things. You can't let it, you know, you have to keep it, keep it alive and you have to be careful too. They have to be sympathetic as well. All just to prove that the sympathy requirements remain the same and you need to pay attention to it. Okay, pop quiz. Everybody got to take out a piece of paper. No, no, no. <laughs> Sorry. Rotten joke, rotten joke. But I do have a question for you for the pop quiz. Take a look at this list. You'll get out of your way. Take a this look, look at this, uh, seven, these seven titles of pictures. What two things, if you've seen two or three of them, has anybody seen two or three of them? Okay, okay, you guys then. What two, or two, uh, two things in all of, do all of these films have in common? What, anything pop out at you? Yes, they're, uh, I believe they are all one hero movies, yes. But what we're looking for is this. Yeah. Yes. Well, they were kind of bombs. Well, oh, water, yeah, water should have gotten it from Waterworld. Was not a bomb. <laughs> should have gotten it from Waterworld. They all have despicably unsympathetic heroes, and all of them bombed at the box office. Even, even Waterworld, that cost over 200 million, and at the time, that was a lot of money. Not anymore, but yes. These, these are your case examples of when they did not pay attention to keeping the hero sympathetic. Okay, just trying to prove the points. Okay, now we're gonna get into the character types here. First of all, we're gonna start with an adversary. Adversary is the primary opposition for the hero, right? And it's one person. Appears unbeatable for, you know, a good hunk of the movie, uh, usually th throughout Act Two. They can wear a mask of friendship. They can be uh, a, a wolf in sheep's clothing for a while, and then that comes off and they are revealed who they truly are, but they have not changed categories. They were simply disguised for a while. Do you remember The Fugitive? Um, again, this goes back a few decades, but uh, it was Harrison Ford in his heyday when he was you know, an A-list movie star. And he is Richard Kimball on the run. Uh, uh, he has been convicted and condemned, condemned to die for his wife's murder, which of course is tearing him apart because he really loved her a lot. But he has a friend that he had when he was still a doctor and respected and all that. He has a friend and when he escapes and goes back home to try to find, you know, the, the one-armed man and all that who, who they thought was the real killer, this is his friend who helps him out a little, slips him, you know, whatever cash he's got in his pocket. You can't give him a cash, you know, he can't go to a bank. He, he needs help, and this character, this other doctor, helps Kimball and, and speaks well of him and so forth. But what we find out at the end of Act Two is the helpful friend doctor, that's the adversary who set him up. He is, he's it, he's the bad guy. And then in Act Three, it's all about the resolution between the two of them, fight to the death kind of thing. So. It can, they can wear a mask of, uh, of friendship, but that not, is not the case. They are not always a bad person. Uh, you know that, and I'm sure you've seen and can think of a whole bunch of adversary characters. Um, they're not 
bad people. They just happen to, because of circumstance or the nature of the story, they come into opposition with your hero. And that can work extremely well sometimes. And uh, remember, of course, the adversary must be one person, not an idea, not a group. It has to be one person or a personification of one person. By that I mean uh, Jaws or one of those. The shark is the adversary. There, there's another guy who's messing things. That's an independent troublemaker, and that's the mayor of the town. <clears throat> but it's the shark who is the direct adversary. But it's not just a shark. It's a super shark. It is the smartest, most devious, most bold and vicious, and, and seeking of revenge. A shark seeking revenge? <laughs> this is what I mean by when, when such a, a creature, an animal, becomes your adversary, they become more like a person. They are personified. It's, so we're going to take a look at something. Uh, uh, I am legend, the top zombie. It's the same thing. It is the sentient zombie who becomes the adversary because he can think and plan and hate, and he's the only zombie who can do that, that kind of thing. Um, OK. Here are some examples. Some classic examples of, of, of adversaries. Oh, heavens, who will ever forget uh, Jamie Gum? Is that how you pronounce his name? Uh, down here on the right. The nightmares that character gave to lots and lots of people, and certainly lots and lots of kids. Uh, he played it, the, you know, the actor who played it, it was written so strong and, and, and drippy with menace. And then it was played to the hilt by the actor, the poor actor, you know. For some, a couple of years after this, he couldn't get any more work because everybody took a look at him and said, oh, that's Jamie Gum. He was so typecast. The poor guy, he was too good. Yeah? But eventually, you know, now he works all the time. Yeah. He plays a lot of cop parts. He was a monk. He was monk. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Oh, he's a great actor. Yes. He uh, Okay. That's, but this is clean and clear. I mean, this is the bad guy, the crazed killer. Okay. Sergeant Foley in An Officer and a Gentleman. That's up, up there. Uh, that was Lou Gossett Jr. And he got an Academy Award. Uh, I think uh, Best Actor, Best supporting, supporting. supporting. Best Supporting Actor. He's the drill sergeant. And he's not a bad man. He's a very good man with a very difficult job. He is a drill sergeant whose job it is in these new candidates for flight school. These are all the people who want to become jet fighter pilots, right? And it's his job to weed out the ones who just might get themselves or somebody else killed. And he, who, the ones who don't, aren't willing to defend and risk themselves to support and defend their, their fellow fighter pilots. And, and he puts a lot of pressure on them to see who cracks. And there are several who crack. And one of them who almost cracks, of course, is the hero, Richard Gere. So he's not a bad man. But oh, <laughs> what a challenge and what an adversary he presents to be to the Richard Gere character. Miranda Priestley and the Devil Wears Prada. Ooh. 
a woman who just relishes in crushing people for the pure power of it. It's, it's marvelously written and marvelously played. Karen Crowder, that's the character's name from Michael Clayton. How many of you have seen Michael Clayton? Um, that you got to put on the list. Michael Clayton, I, at the risk perhaps of getting too personal, but that's one of my favorite films, Michael Clayton. And that year, and it was only, I don't know, seven, eight years ago, uh, uh, I was beside myself, furious, that it was overlooked for the Oscars because there was so much going on there. It was a really terrific film. And her as the adversary, you just got to see this. You got to see this. She's an executive, you know, a, a woman trying to climb her way up in the executive jungle. And her interpretation of how that is done is you do anything necessary up to and including murder. It's not like she's comfortable with it, but she does it and she is the adversary. It's great. It's a wonderful movie. Agent Parcher in a Beautiful Mind. This is. The beautiful mind, I used to try to do that in this class, but it's too long and it's too complicated and goes, you know, there's too many things to talk about, so it really doesn't work for our purposes. <clears throat> but a beautiful mind is the story of a man, John Nash, a, a genius, uh, a physicist, and uh, he goes insane. Uh, he, 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 I forget the nature of the insanity, but... Uh, he, huh? he, yes, he, he's, he has hallucinations. He talks to people who aren't there. I mean, his whole career was destroyed by, I mean, what can you do? You go insane. They don't employ insane people as uh, professors and scientists. But that could have been done whereas, I mean, what does that mean? It means that John Nash is his own worst enemy. He is being destroyed from within. That means he's his own nemesis. However, it wasn't done that way when it was turned into a movie. The nemesis, the adversary, has to be one person, a real person. And so Agent Parcher came onto the scene and was invented. Agent Parcher is his strongest fantasy, although he doesn't know it's a fantasy for, you know, two-thirds of, uh, of Act Two, but it's his invention and projection of a person who has control of him. And that way, okay, Agent Parcher is the personification, the one-person adversary that fills in for him being at war with himself. Because wars, you know, Battles where people are their own worst enemy, as a rule, they do not work. We can talk about that later if you like. I got another example there. <clears throat> but Agent Parcher and Amy Dunn in Gone Girl. Okay, there's some great examples. <clears throat> now then, <clears throat> here's, here's my first example for you uh, for adversary. <clears throat> here's the reason I picked this one. Um, sideways. How many of you have seen Sideways? Ooh, good, good, good. Most, most of you. Uh, and it's worth, it's worth putting down on your lists. Um, Sideways was an independent, small movie outside of the Hollywood mainstream, truly. I, I checked, and I believe it was made for around $6 million total budget. Its total gross 
in its initial theatrical release was $100 million. And that's in its first theatrical release. Yes, that I would say, against the $6 million it cost to make, it did very well indeed. So, of course, I got it, broke it down, and it is the paradigm. It worked because it is the paradigm writ small as opposed to the big budget movies where it's writ large. But that is the way it is structured beginning to end. And uh, but one of the things that's unusual about it <clears throat> is that the adversary, most people say Jack is, you know, his friend, his Lothario friend who keeps getting in more and more trouble every single day that, that Miles, the hero, then has to get him out of. <clears throat> that, he, that he's the adversary. He is not. He is uh, Jack in this, for those who have seen it and may see it soon. Jack is a comedic sidekick character. And the adversary is Miles' ex-wife, Victoria. He is obsessed with and crushed with depression over. Uh, they got divorced about a year ago. He lost his wife, Victoria. We find out eventually that it was his own fault, but you know it's not her fault. She didn't just dump him. Uh, he crossed the line. He had an affair, etc. Old story. Um, but she is not physically present in most of the movie. She is present in two locations, this scene, which is very early in, in the second act, and then she shows up, and that, even that, she's not physically present. We only hear her voice on the telephone. And then she shows up in the obligatory scene. Remember, the, the, the adversary has to be one person or personification because of the obligatory scene. That's where they have to show up in the flesh so that the hero and the adversary can go for all the marbles. And that's where she shows up, which again is proof that she's the adversary. <clears throat> but it's done so uniquely and so simply. I just, I just, I really cherish this. Adversary is not physically present. The hero's ex-wife, Victoria. Okay, let's see if I can lay this out for you quickly. I got to do this like that. Okay. The setup, for there's a few of you who have not seen it, and the setup is that Miles has taken Jack, his, his good buddy, on a bachelor party trip through wine country. In one week, Jack will get married. And Miles is an onophile, and that's why he's taking him to wine country and showing him around. He's proud to show him how much he, he knows about wines. But unfortunately, Jack has always been a compulsive chaser of women. Any woman who's in the room, uh, he, he, it's like, it, and it is, it's a compulsion. And he, he admits that later on. He says, you don't know the nature of my problem. And it's true. It's for him a real problem. Uh, but that gets him into all kinds of trouble, which means it pulls Miles into all kinds of trouble. <clears throat> okay. Jack recently told Miles just a few hours before this scene. But uh, Jack uh, told Miles that his ex-wife, Victoria, just remarried. Miles didn't know that, obviously, because he wasn't invited to her wedding. Uh, uh, and that, for Miles, in this little movie, that is stunning surprise one, because he freaks out. 
and he's very childish in his response, and he runs back to the car. He's just talking. He's, he's waxing loquacious about the memories of when he came to this beautiful spot where he'd taken Jack under this tree, and we had a picnic here, and we drank wine and made love, and, and then Jack breaks it to him. He says, look, uh, I was looking for an opportunity when we were alone to tell you this, but Victoria just remarried, and, and Miles comes unglued, grabs a bottle of wine, runs off into the vineyard as Jack is chasing after him, trying to stop him, and he's slugging back. This is the beginning of Act Two. There are, remember what we said about Act Two. Act Two, well, Act One that fades into Act Two is the adolescence, the character growth. In the character growth pattern, it's the adolescence of the hero. And at the beginning of Act Two, Miles is quite an adolescent uh, and very childish in his, in his moods and, uh, and in his depression. Uh, and, that's, and that it's laid out for us at the beginning of Act Two. This is the nature of what must change within him in the character growth arc, right? So. Jack has just set up this blind double date because uh, he met uh, Stephanie, the lady he's sitting beside there in that other picture. And he's coming on full bore for Stephanie. Unfortunately, he doesn't tell Stephanie that he's going to get married in about five days. Just a little oversight there. And of course, that weighs on Miles, too, because Miles has a better uh, moral compass than, than Jack does about these things. And it's troubling him, but you know, he can't blow it up either. Jack has set up a blight double date with Stephanie, who, who, who got a friend of hers to come. So basically, uh, uh, Maya is uh, Miles, Miles' date for the night. But he is ignoring her completely because he's getting drunk and he's being depressed. Miles is lost in the past, all, and this kept get, getting repeated. And even in, in Act One, even his mother says it. He stops off for a scene with his mother. He's you know, stealing, borrowing money or something like that. And the mother says, oh, you should go back with Victoria. You two are perfect for each other. She is echoing the truth of his suffering. He has always felt that they would get back together again, and that's his greatest wish. And uh, I love double entendre titles, and that's part of the double entendre of the title of the movie, which is Sideways. Sideways, number one, of course means drunk. It's another, you know, another term for tipsy, because uh, people uh, move sideways rather than straight ahead. They lose balance. But sideways is also the way that Miles is living his life. He can't go ahead. He's stuck. He's, 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 he's focused completely on the past. He wants to step back into the past, get that relationship again, and he cannot think about moving forward. And that's why, at the moment, he is not communicating very well with uh, the lovely lady, Maya, at all. Um, Miles is lost in the pan past, longing to go home to Vicky. He can't even, and again, as a repetition, he can't even see this terrific woman, Maya, right beside him. Jack uh, doesn't want a drunk Miles to ruin Jack's own chances of sleeping with Stephanie. Jack is, yes, a narcissist, and he's just worried about his own uh, goals and concerns, but he's sweet and he's funny. Um, 
and he has, t he has told uh, Miles, do not drink and dial. He told him, I just outside, he's been shaking him. You cannot drink and dial. I don't want you spoiling this date. So, of course, Miles drinks a lot, drinks a lot of wine until he gets good and blasted, and he goes to dial, stag staggers on back to the payphone at the back of the restaurant. <clears throat> and the dialing, of course, is to Victoria. And so there is a scene here, early in the second act, where the power of the adversary is demonstrated. Just here, it's only on the telephone. She is not physically present, okay? Victoria answers the phone, and he's lighthearted, and he tries to be, uh, you know, upbeat about it. Oh, Jack just told me, and I called to say congratulations on your wedding, you know, and it's all bullshit, of course. And it slips into Jack's being sarcastic and snide, and then crashing, pretty much crashing emotionally. Then he crumbles and says it again and out loud, I just always felt someday we'd get back together again. And that's become harder now since she's gotten remarried. And the adversary still dominates every corner of his life. She has the power here. You see how that is? She is more powerful than he. She, they divorced, she is moving on in life. He can't, he's stuck because of his immaturity. Uh, and she says, Miles, don't call me when you're drunk. Well, <laughs> didn't help. And he kind of weaves on back to the table. Miles still is stuck drifting sideways. And more than anything, he still wants to go home to Victoria. And Jack is just ticked off at him because he's starting to spoil his odds with uh, Stephanie. That's, that's Jack's fist over the top of the wine bottle, uh, cutting him off. Miles must learn what true adult unselfish love is. It's, it's a really very nice, very, very well-drawn character growth arc. He does grow up by the end. Okay, so now we jump to Act 3. And the one other scene, the obligatory scene, in which the adversary appears. At great personal risk, Miles has gotten Jack home just in time to be married and the big wedding and stuff, right? And as you can see in the picture with the bandage, Jack has had his nose broken. For those of you who haven't seen it, the way he gets his nose broken is when Stephanie finally finds out that in 24 hours he's going to get married to somebody else. And she whacks him really hard and breaks his nose. Okay, but Miles is the hero. And Miles has grown in the second half of the second act because Jack gets himself into such deep trouble. And it's pretty, pretty outrageous. And it's, it is a hilarious comedy. And it's, it works. It all works. Uh, it's awfully well written. But he has made sacrifices and take, taken great personal risks to get Miles back and get him married. He has matured. And so he must face the obligatory scene. And here comes Victoria. Victoria comes up to him and introduces her new husband. And rather than the childish reaction that he got at the beginning of Act Two, he's hurt. Yes, he's wounded. He's just, you know, awful things emotionally are going on inside of this guy. But 
The new husband, Ken, is, is, is respectful. He offers a handshake. He's glad to meet him and all that. And then Ken makes himself scary. He says, I'll give you guys a minute uh, and I'll go get the car. You know, He's a class act, really, this guy. Miles discovers Ken is actually a decent guy. Miles is suffering, yes, but he deals with it by also offering respect in return. So they chat a little bit more. He's no longer behaving like a child, uh, like he was uh, several times earlier, and that's a good thing. And Miles says, well, let's go to the reception and toast to your wedding. Only this time, he almost means it. And Victoria says, oh, uh, she's not going to the re reception. Uh, uh, she's given up drinking. And that's kind of strange to, to Miles because they, they were wine drinkers and they shared that passion when they were together. Uh, and Ken comes up and she says, I need a minute more. And this all sets up for what's coming, you know, those of you who have seen it. Then the final test, I mean, she's sweet about it. She is taking the time to make sure he knows in advance. This is an honorable thing for her to be doing. And the final test and the final blow. She says as gently as she can, I'm pregnant. For a guy like Miles, that is truly the hardest kick in the vitals he could possibly receive. And Victoria and Ken head off to their future lives together. Uh, and Miles now knows there's absolutely no road back. That's it. Her life is settled and set in another way, and he is not part of it. That's never going to happen. He must love her enough to finally let her go. And then there's this lovely little kind of quasi-denouement scene where uh, that is his victory. Uh, at last, he closes the door on the past, and he throws himself a growing up party. He opens his best and most expensive, out, outrageously expensive bottle of wine, which he was always saving for a very, very special occasion. Well, now he opens it alone in a burger joint to toast to uh, the sol and a solitary farewell toast to Victoria and the past and to a hope for a new start in the future for himself. Okay, I got a bit far afield there because it's a small movie and small movies uh, are more about interpersonal things than, than the larger movies. And in order to st understand the adversary, and the power she has over this hero, you need to know some of this stuff. But this is an extra, for this story and this hero, this is an extraordinarily successful adversary character. She's in two scenes in the whole movie. That's another way of doing it. Okay, and these are the requirements. Primary opposition for the hero, yes, appears unbeatable. For a long, long time, she sure appears unbeatable, and, and she's going to take him down uh, a very bad emotional trail. Can wear the mask of friendship, not relevant. Not always a bad person, she's not. She's a true sweetheart. Must be a person, and so she is. So you can see some of these are fulfilled in this particular adversa adversary, and some of them are not. The love interest. Now. Uh, this is, outside a hero and, and, and adversary, I believe the love interest character is the most fascinating of the rest of the character categories <clears throat> because it's so replete with 
emotion and a way to explore the nature of the hero what is right with them and what is hurting them and what is wrong with them too. The love interest creates a subplot or a main plot and drives story change and humanizes the hero. There's, you know, through these, through intimate emotions, but it's about mate bonding with a love interest character. That's what it is. And there is a way to tell. I think this is important to know because a lot of people get confused about love interest characters, whether they're co-heroes or, or, or you know, what is their place in the story. There is a way to know whether a love interest character is a subplot or the main plot. And it's this. If you took the love interest character and that uh, uh, relationship out of the movie, would you still have a story? That's how you do it. And sometimes, and we're going to see, uh, when, when I have some examples here lined up, you'll see what I mean. But that's important to know. <clears throat> Drive story change. Works alternately for and against the hero. Remember, every character category isn't only about helping the hero. There has to be challenge and there has to be conflict, too, for it to work. The love interest character works alternately for and against the hero. And the issue of a love interest character with the hero, whoever he or she is, the love interest character adds sexual tension and a sexual conflict uh, uh, going on under the surface of things. Because that plot is about, in fact, mate bonding, which is, in fact, about sexual conquest. Now, I'm stating it bluntly uh, to make the point. I mean, there's a lot of wiggle room there. And using this plot or subplot, you can do it from the very, very gentle and, and, and hardly hinting at sexuality at all to the incredibly steamy and every, everything in between. And that, of course, depends on you and it depends on the story you're trying to write. You get your choice. But the thing is, it is there. And once you have sexual tension between people, it is a universal thing. Every nation, every language, humanity gets what that is. I mean, we, we are. We are sensual creatures. And therefore, you are offering up emotion that is international in scope. And you can use that for character growth purposes, for challenges of personality and how people must grow, and all that kind of stuff. It is, you, it is the well of what you want screenwriting and visual storytelling to be, which is the pursuit of emotion. It's just, it's amazing. It works very well. And it also pushes the hero into character growth. Ah, and yes. People sometimes get this wrong. If a couple uh, is married at the beginning of the, of, the, of the film, of Of Your Story, and with some ups and downs, whatever, you know, but they stay married and they are reasonably happy together all the way through the movie and to the end, that is not a love interest character. It has to be about this, back and forth, 
back and forth, opposing and, uh, uh, and then helping and opening. A couple of examples of that. Uh, there are two um, um, Apollo movies that have come out. Actually, three lately, but uh, the two that I'm thinking of are Apollo 13, which goes back a ways, and the, the one, the latest one, which was overlooked by everybody, which is really tragic because I thought it was really, I've seen it three times now, and it's just riveting. And it's First Man. It, it was the true rendition of the true story of, uh, uh, of what's his name? The first, Armstrong, Neil Armstrong. But Neil Armstrong is married. And in Apollo 13, Tom Hanks is married too. And the married spouse at home becomes that category of character that they turn into is the endangered innocent, not a love interest. They become the goal of those two uh, astronauts. They are going through all of this and all they want to do you know, for all the, you know, the problems that come up and the possibilities of dying that come up. They want to surmount all that so that they can get back to Earth and save that endangered innocent from the metaphorical death that she would also be experiencing if he were to die in space. That is an endangered innocent plot and that is not a love interest plot. Okay, here's some examples. Neytiri, where is she? Oh, oh, wait a minute, here she is, in, in Avatar. Oh, again, what a, what a wonderful relationship in that picture. And this I ask you. <clears throat> She's also doing a whole lot of uh, mentor duties, uh, again, but with overlaid with sexual tension, because that's key to that relationship. It just is, and elevates it. Uh, if you take Natiri out of Avatar, do you still have a movie? Yeah, you do. Which means Natiri is a love interest subplot. It is not the main plot. Although she, you know, she's there and it's big and it's important and all that stuff. But all the same, it is a subplot. It is not the primary goal. Right? Officer Rhodes... In uh, Bridesmaids, that's easier to see and to be able to say, you know, if you took him out of it, could you still have a movie? Yes, you could. That's a subplot. Lisa McDowell in Coming to America. If you removed her from Coming to America, would you still have a movie? You sure? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, yeah, that's it. This is not fair. I'm going back too far here. I'm going back too far. You would not. Because she is the hero's, God, Eddie Murphy, the prince. She is his goal. He goes to America to find a woman that he can fall in love with and marry and not have to marry the, the woman that he knows nothing about and really doesn't care about back home that the king, his father, have, has chosen for him. She is the goal. Therefore, she is a love interest character who also provides, uh, uh, there's a double role here. We won't talk about it tonight, but the love interest who is the main uh, goal also is, uh, plays adversary. They are each other's adversary and love interest simultaneously. 
That's why it works differently, and we'll talk about that another time. Um, Alicia Nash, in A Beautiful Mind. If you take her out, what? You could tell them. Yes, it would be crushingly less interesting and very diminished, but yes, you could. You could remove her, and you would still have the man struggling to come back from madness and making it. Uh, yes, so that is... When one of the character categories gets played by a movie star, and it is big, I mean, it takes a lot of screen time, and it's really important to things, but it is still a subplot in its way, that is called a charismatic whatever, a charismatic mentor, or a charismatic love interest. Um, they get a lot of screen time, but at their core, they are still filling, filling the functions uh, of these subcategories. George, of course. June Carter. How about June Carter <coughs> and Johnny Cash? If you uh, took June Carter out of there, would there still be a movie? What does he want? Throughout, he wants June Carter. Even more than he wants to be famous as a singer, he wants her. Yeah, she is the love interest adversary for that film, and so forth. Okay, you get the idea. <coughs> now then, this example... I've chosen for a love interest character. This is uh, Carol the Waitress in As Good As It Gets. This one had me stumped for a while when I first sat down to analyze it. I thought it was a three hero movie. And then I went through it once and I said, no, that doesn't work. And I took a harder look at it. <clears throat> this is a one hero movie. Melvin Udall is the hero because it is Melvin who wants Carol. She never, until, you know, at certain points toward the end, expresses really any romantic interest in this poor man who is trapped in being a jerk, you know, because of the nature of how he defends himself against all emotion. But the beauty of the profession that has been assigned to him, which is a very successful romance novel writer, I mean, it's just, it's perfect, you know. That is the true him screaming to get out, you know, that kind of thing. It's, yeah, I think it's a wonderful, wonderful story, wonderfully written. But okay, <clears throat> at this point, and this, this is part of a midpoint sequence, uh, Carol, um, her son, I believe it's asthma, he's, he's got asthma really bad, the kind that under certain conditions the kid could die from. And he had a really bad attack, and she got all panicked, and she's a waitress who waits on, on Melvin every morning. And how many of you have seen this? Okay, most. Okay, cool. Good. Then you get it. And then, after a he Melvin sends a top flight, top dollar doctor to her apartment to, uh, to see the boy, and yes, and he writes prescriptions, and he's telling her, you know, it's going to be okay. We're going to bring him back. And he knows how to do it. And she's been getting, you know, crap advice from these, other, you know, bad, cheap programs, uh, health care programs that she's had. Uh, Carol couldn't afford the doctor for her sick son, so Melvin got her a very high-end one. And in the middle of the night, she got up, she sleeps on the couch, and she pulled on her jeans. She has to tell Melvin something. She is burning with the need to tell Melvin something. And she runs out to get to his place in the night, in the middle of the night. 
That's how urgent this is for her. And that's telling us something right there. Well, it happens to be raining that night, and she also gets soaked. So she's dripping, soaking wet by the time she gets to Melvin's apartment building. And of course, Melvin is very well off, and the apartment is very upscale. So here she is, and she's coming up uh, uh, to his front door. <laughs> this is a comedy. This is a romantic comedy. And this whole thing, setting it up this way, especially what she's going to be telling him, be that she has to tell him face by face that this, the rain is accentuating a sensuality in her that she is about to deny. And it's perfect as a juxtaposition. So she knocks, it's me, uh, and uh, Melvin lives alone self-created isolation, <clears throat> no one can stand him. Uh, early on, I guess it's the, it's the next door neighbor, Simon says to, says to Melvin, you are a horror of a human being. I mean, that's the general attitude that he has created out there in the world. <clears throat> then he hears, my goodness, it's Carol the waitress. Uh, he, he Yes, he wants her to wait on him every day when he goes for breakfast because she's the only one who will wait on him because you know, she can give Guff as good as she gets it you know, from this guy. Uh, but he has stronger feelings. I mean, he's, he's of an age. He's desperate. He's got to break out of his prison, and he knows that. And he's drawn to her. And one of the reasons Melvin is sympathetic is we like her too. <laughs> I mean, she's a genuine human being. She's a terrific lady. And you can tell by you know, caring for her son and all. And she, he's making a good choice here. And therefore, we're kind of rooting for him in strange ways. OK, but because of his OCD, he, has insufferable, all, he is insufferable, always cracking wise with sharp put downs for everyone. And she says, I'm sorry about the hour, but I must speak with you. She's, he hasn't opened the door yet. And now he opens the door. Uh, Melvin opens the door and immediately averts his eyes, embarrassed at seeing her T-shirt. He was not expecting this. Because for him, you know, the sensuality there is, A, it's funny. Because, and, and the way the, dial, the scene is being played and what's going on between them. But what is being done here by the writers and by the director is they are playing the element of sensuality and sexuality and mate bonding conquest. That is what they are playing here. Romantic comedies and romances all have to have something insurmountable between the two potential lovers insurmountable and that's what the story is about how they finally get together in this case what is insurmountable is melvin's personality okay and he's uh, his eyes uh, you know averts his eyes and so forth just glancing at the t-shirt and she finally catches up with it i mean she's cold she's wet she wasn't thinking about that oops carol realizes the physical pic picture she is unwittingly presenting Melvin can't take, take his eyes from wandering, wandering a bit, but he also looks down and sees that she's sopping wet. You know, she's dripping all over the floor, all over the, the hallway. For a guy like Melvin, you know, he can't step on a crack, let alone sta watch somebody standing there dripping all over everything. 
Uh, Carol waits for Melvin to be polite and offer her a bloody towel. So he's, he's flummoxed at this point, and so he's got to, and he goes inside, and he doesn't know quite to do what quite to say. And he, uh, Melvin hates thank yous. Again, it's part of his no emotion. He fights emotion at every turn. Uh, thank yous contain emotion, and he always avoids re- revealing emotion. And that's his sarcastic, nasty wit. That's another way he avoids emotion. But he says, uh, if you've come to thank me, don't. Don't. Uh, put it in a note. He doesn't want any emotion expressed face to face, even just in a thank you. So he gets her a towel. There's another funny bit in there. We won't go there. Uh, And Carol just has to ask, why did you do this for Spencer? That's her son. And Melvin said, I wanted you to come back to the restaurant and wait on me. And she says, do you have any idea how odd that sounds? But it's pure Melvin, too, and we know that. Um, So he blurts it. So what have you come to tell me? What is this? And there is one of the more charming, elongated, deathly silences between two people now. The awkward silence lingers. He's come all this way, and this cold and the wet. And she's trying to find the words to say what she came to say. And it's not coming. She really struggles with it. And on until she can finally blurt it out all at once, push it out, and say, I will never sleep with you. Never. (laughs) That's what woke her up in the middle of the night and drove her through the rain. She was terrified, worried that this is why he did this. And in truth, that had something to do with it. (laughs) We're, We're about to see that here, too. But also, again, a relative to the sexual tension. Okay, if that's her message, that could have waited until, you know, next morning at the, at the cafe. Why this absolute burning urgency? You know, there's something else going on there. All of Melvin's defenses go up and he resorts to his self-protective, cynical, sharp tongue. Because deep down, That was what he was hoping or thinking. Well, we don't open for the no sex oaths until 9 a.m. And again, that's that's pure Melvin, right? And again, he's just being defensive and obnoxious. And that's how he gets defensive. And she turns to go and she mumbles, I really mean it. And uh, and he blurts, "Uh, will you be at the restaurant to wait on me tomorrow? That's a very strange thing to say, and to go through all of this for that. And she says, yes, and she goes. There's the, that's the scene, and next, this comes right next, and this only is a few seconds long. We cut to a close-up of his clock and then his slippers while he's in bed now, sleeping, and mumbling to himself, half, asle- half asleep, never, she says, never. And then he gets up, and he puts on his slippers. And what is happening here is perfect for a midpoint sequence. Perfect. The second step of character growth, which usually takes place in hero goal sequence 12, is when the hero undertakes a physical action 
some sort of metaphoric physical action to overcome what is stopping them and clogging them emotionally inside. And that is exactly what Melvin does. A man who hates all pills gets up to take his first anti-obsessive compulsive disorder pill ever. That is a huge thing for Melvin. So, all right, the love interest as Carol and at the midpoint. We understand, you know, the, the kind of wacky, rare and wacky nature of that uh, relationship. Creates a subplot or main plot? Absolutely. Drives story change and humanizes the hero? <laughs> you bet. Works alternately for and against the hero? Yes, throughout and in other ways she is doing that. Adds sexual tension and a sexual conquest conflict. Remember that can be just a small tone, a mood. It's not, you know, nothing blatant or flagrant necessarily. Um, and pushes the hero into character growth. He just took the pill. Yes, all of that is true of this character. I think it's a very unusual love interest relationship with the hero. When you see the whole thing, I think it works marvelously. Okay, sidekick. That's, <laughs> that's the prince, Eddie Murphy, and then uh, Semi. I think Semi was the name of his, his loyal uh, sidekick, right? <laughs> a sidekick is not as skilled as the hero, but has certain skills to offer. Remains completely loyal, as Semi does. The sidekick is always loyal. Does not die unless it's a formal tragedy. Yeah, then like King Lear and the Fool, yeah. Uh, provides counsel and conflict, yes. Often same sex, but not always. There are some very interesting uh, uh, relationships, sidekick relationships that are opposite sex relationships. Uh, and can echo a hero's romance with a comedic one. Now then, here are some successful sidekicks. Dory in Finding Nemo. Ditsy Dory, the forgetful one. She is a classic, classic sidekick. Rusty Ryan in Ocean's Eleven, also a classic. It's again, sometimes casting throws you off because uh, He's a star playing the part, but it's still the role and function in the story is, that's a sidekick. Ellie Burr in Insomnia. How many of you have seen Insomnia? A few, okay, yeah. It is, it's really terrific in many, many ways, and it's got relationships that are worth taking a look at, especially this one between Ellie Burr and her hero. Um, so I would put it on the list, just don't view it when you're depressed. Okay. Uh, Albert, of course, in Hitch. Oda Mae Brown in Ghost. You remember how wonderfully charming that relationship was? She becomes the medium through which the dead guy can speak to his living uh, girlfriend. They weren't married, were they? I don't, I don't think so. I think it was a girlfriend. Uh, and she's perfect and she's hilarious. And Peter Brand and so forth. Okay. I have picked also here an opposite sex, uh, uh, a sidekick. Uh, I want you to see how this works too. This is not the obvious, one of the obvious ones. Okay, and this is out of uh, Inception and it's Ariadne. Remember, 
He, uh, Cobb, I'm, I'm assuming most of you have seen this picture, yes? Has anybody not seen it? Just to, okay. Hmm? Okay. Put it on the list. Uh, he has taken, he's putting together a team uh, because he needs to enter a CEO's dreams and fool him into changing his mind about something extremely important. It's rather intellectual, but physically it works. Visually, it works very, very well in the movies. Extraordinary movie, actually. <clears throat> and she is the architect he has hired and brought in. Um, so she goes back. Uh, she's curious about her hero here because he's acting kind of funny, kind of strange. Uh, he, she can tell that there's something going on inside of him that uh, she really thinks she needs to know about. Finds Cobb hooked to the dream machine and she joins him. She hooks herself up to the same dream. <clears throat> Their upcoming job is dangerous, so she needs to know more about Cobb's troubled dreams. What is he hiding? And then she finds herself, wakes up in the dream, and finds herself descending in this decrepit, wonderful old elevator, uh, descending into Cobb's dark psyche. And she finds him in, in a room of a house somewhere, speaking in low, low tones, low personal tones, with a woman. Uh, she doesn't yet know that this is Maul and that this is, this is his dead wife. Maul is dead, and the only place she still exists is in uh, Cobb's memory and dreams. And, but all of a sudden, there's, a, there's another person in the dream, so Maul and Cobb are startled that they're with somebody, and they see they're not alone. <clears throat> Cobb runs over. You know, he's got to get her out of there as quickly as he can, or get Ariadne out of there. He says, what are you doing here? This has nothing to do with you. And she retorts like a good sidekick would. It has everything to do with me. You've asked me to share dreams with you. I need to go, implication, I need to know what the heck is going on in here. Well, <laughs> I guess I jumped the gun. I need to know what's going on with you. Yes, there are things you should know. He's not always you know, antagonistic towards his sidekick. That is not the nature of a, of a hero sidekick relationship. He knows he's, he's got to show her something, He'll let her in on something. So Cobb takes her deeper into his dream world. He is willing to reveal parts of his troubled psyche to his sidekick. He takes her to his home at another time and he shows her his home, takes her down the hall and into his home and uh, shows him her two, his two children that he longs more than anything to return to. That's his goal, actually. But the children never quite turn to me. I can never see their faces, he confesses. He's always denied fulfillment of being with them and holding them and having them see him too. And Ariadne says, these aren't dreams. They're memories. And you told me never to use memories. See, she's on this stuff. She's learning. She's putting two and two together. Ariadne slip, slips back uh, into the elevator without Cobb and pushes the basement button. She must find out what haunts Cobb the most. So at the very bottom in the basement of <laughs> things that he protects about himself, she finds his darkest memory 
is about a hotel suite where furniture has been trashed and thrown, thrown around uh, like it had been a big fight or something like that. And then she noticed over on the, on the couch is the same woman that she saw before. This is Maul. This is Cobb's dead wife, remembered in his in memories and dreams. Maul hisses, you don't belong here. The sidekick finds herself trying to understand the nature of the hero's wound. Do you know what it is to be a lover, to be half of a whole? And, and Ariadne is just kind of overwhelmed by it all. It's just, uh, uh, no. And what she does not see, at least it's shot in a way that she does not see, that Maul leans over basically and picks up a weapon, uh, a, broken, a broken wine glass. Cobb arrives, pulls Ariadne back into the elevator just in time because Maul attacks her. Maul attacks and screams, you promised, you promised. And she's talking to Cobb, obviously. He has promised her something. Ariadne now understands that Maul could show up in their dream at any time with the power to kill people. She insists the other members of the team need to be told. <clears throat> okay, I've had to skip over a whole lot of stuff, but what she is doing, the absorption of information about her hero, how she pushes back on her hero uh, uh, as he tries to cover things up, forcing him to deal with the troubling stuff inside, this is classic, this is classic uh, sidekick stuff. And there is no no hint of anything romantic between the two of them. That would, that would ruin the whole sidekick thing. That's not an issue here. That would, that would change the dynamic, and it just wouldn't work in this case. The sidekick, not as skilled as the hero, that is true here, remains completely loyal. That is absolutely true of her. Does not die. <clears throat> Actually, that is true also by the end. Provides counsel and conflict for the hero, exactly what she does, usually same sex, but not always, and can echo a hero's romance with a comedic one of her own. In that case, that is irrelevant, but that is how she fits into that category. Okay, mentor. I just, two more, <laughs> two more, hang in. Uh, and these are going to go relatively quickly, but uh, I would like you to see tonight at least these six. <clears throat> the mentor can be any person, any age, uh, as long as they pass on skills and wisdom to the hero. They can, there can be more than one mentor in a story, like Star Wars. There, there are several mentors going on there. The mentor often dies, but not always. The mentor gives a hero a life-saving gift. That is almost always that's what happens, whether it's knowledge or it's an actual gift or if it's uh, you know, teaching uh, the hero about the power of the force. That is a life-saving gift that Obi-Wan passes on. They can be also dishonest, immoral, or a reprobate. That has nothing to do with what we're going to be seeing now here. But like, for instance, uh, what, a league of their own? You know, the Tom Hanks, part, the drunken guy who gets the job of, of being their coach, uh, uh, a reprobate. 
and turns into quite a, a meaningful and powerful mentor character. Can be dishonest or immoral or a reprobate and can be negative. This one gets overlooked sometimes. Can be negative and be teaching or trying to teach the hero the wrong way to live. In uh, uh, The Firm, remember that Tom Cruise uh, uh, film, the Gene Hackman character, I forget the character's name, but he's assigned, you know, the, the, new, the newbie, uh, the Tom Cruise character, he is he's the partner of the firm who's assigned to teach him the glories of the ways of working in a firm that uh, their major client is the mafia. And he shows him in a very sad way, because he was at one time a very decent man, and how this how working for this firm, has, but he doesn't even know this is what he's, he was showing him, but how it has sucked the soul out of the guy. He's crushed by what he has done with his life. Okay, some successful mentors. I'm going to show you the Matrix. I got a, a, a bit on the Matrix here. Uh, Morpheus is, uh, you know, the classic father figure of all time. Penny Lane, also interesting, as I mean, she is a young woman groupie in Almost Famous. And she is teaching the hero, what is a 16 year old, I think, sport uh, uh, music writer. Um, uh, how to, how, you know, groupie world, you know, how to be a groupie and following, and uh, uh, following a band. And basically, she's a negative mentor teaching him how hollow this life really is. Matilda and Leon the Professional. How many have seen that one? Yeah, they, it runs late night, you know, they play it all the time. It's really a terrific movie if you get a chance to see it. I mean, you don't have to go out of your way, but if you get a chance to see it, see it. <clears throat> because in this case, the mentor is a 12-year-old girl. And uh, because her mother and father are killed by the bad, crazed bad guy, <clears throat> And she takes up with and follows and, and, and seeks for protection Leon, who is himself a hitman, for protection. But what she ends up doing is giving Leon a reason to live, teaching him about life. Natalie Portman, right? Yes. It was one of her first. Yeah, I think it One of her very first films, and it's, I think, a very powerful film. Anyway, Simon in As Good As It Gets. And uh, Chaz Reinhold in, in Wedding Crashers, if anybody remembers that one. Again, he's a negative. He's a negative mentor there. And uh, even in The Wizard of Oz. Okay. <clears throat> okay, I will assume most of you have seen The Matrix. <clears throat> Trinity, this, in, in Hero Goal, this is the end of Hero Goal Sequence 5. And Trinity has taken Neo up in this strange building to meet Morpheus for the first time. And he's been built up as, as quite something. And it's important to meet him, and it's an honor to meet him. So she says, and he asked her, I think, uh, is there anything I should know? And she says, be honest. He knows more than you can imagine. So knock, knock, and they go in. Over by the window waiting is Morpheus. And the first thing he says is, at last. Neo says, it's an honor to meet you. And Morpheus says, no, the honor is all mine. 
This mentor is already giving his gift right up front, his gift to the hero. And it is the gift of knowing that he is special and that he is chosen by their mythology, by the rebel mythology. <clears throat> and all he has to do is come to believe it himself. And that's his arc, his growth arc. I imagine you're feeling a bit like Alice tumbling down the rabbit hole. All the images, you know, all those images are coming into play here. Even Alice through the looking glass, that's going to get used here in a minute too. Uh, you're here because you know, yes, listen. You're here because you know something. You can't put your finger on it, but you've always known that something was wrong. And the reason I'm particularly pointing out this passage is that is the state, the emotional state, of almost all heroes in the first act. They are living in their own world, their own, you know, their life yesterday, the world they've always lived in, and it's just day to day, and you know, okay, it's there, and they do it, but they know that something is wrong. It hasn't been even, maybe it hasn't even been articulated yet, but something is wrong with society, and what they don't know is they are the one who is going to set it right. Morpheus says, you were born into a prison you cannot taste or smell or touch. A prison for your mind. Can you imagine when this first came out and was speaking to young people, teens and young people all over the world, how they're just sitting there nodding and saying, yes, yes, that's me. That's how I feel. Uh, the identification here was complete with an entire generation. You cannot be told what the matrix is. You must see it for yourself. All I'm offering is the truth. And then the classic moment when Morpheus offers the two pills. Pick blue or pick red. Pick blue, you wake up in your bed and you go on about your lives and you, know, you forgot this altogether. Pick the red and there's no turning back. So, of course, the hero picks the red. And that is the inciting incident. When he chooses and swallows the red pill, that is what begins this story and no other. He is defined by that act. And there's no going back. That has already been stated through him. So that is the end of Hero Goal Sequence 5. And it pushes us into Hero Goal Sequence 6. <clears throat> and uh, Cypher, he meets, he meets some some of the crew. Cypher says, buckle your seatbelt, Dorothy, because Kansas is going bye-bye. And things start to get weird and change, and the mirror starts to flow, and he touches it, if you'll recall. And then the mirror latches onto his finger and starts pouring up his arm, and there's no stopping it. And uh, it's about to drown him. Not looking good for, uh, for Neo. But then this, this takes him, boom, he wakes up in a, in a, in a tank-like thing and, covered by membrane and tubes, and he fights his way out, right? It's like being born. It's a metaphor. It's being reborn into the real world. Uh, he fights, he gets up, and he takes a look outside of his own pod to see millions and millions of other pods just like it. You've been living in a dream world, Neo. 
This is the world as it is today. Watch this. What do we call that look? Bingo. <clears throat> Stunning surprise one for Neo. He wakes up and he sees the real world for the first time. Eyes open wide, mouth open, drippy with birthing goo. Uh, yeah. It takes place 33 minutes in, which is just about perfect. <clears throat> and welcome to Act Two, Neo. He is thrown into this new world in which his entire adventure and story will take place. Welcome to the desert of the real. <clears throat> We've done it, Trinity. We found him. Again, a reiteration of the fact that the, the mentor is utterly convinced that this is the chosen one who is worthy of all the instruction that now must be given. Okay, mentor can be any person of any age. Yes, can be more than one mentor in a story. In this case, actually, there's only one mentor. <clears throat> the mentor often dies, but not always. In this case, he almost dies. He's captured and he's tortured, but he does not die. And I think there's a very good storytelling reason for that. I won't go into it now, but somebody remind me later and we may have a discussion about why the mentor is actually allowed to live here in this story. Gives, uh, whoops, Gives the hero a life-saving gift? Yes, belief that he is extraordinarily special. Can be dishonest, not re relevant here. Can be negative, not relevant here. Okay, one last one. The endangered innocent. The endangered innocent, as I was pointing out earlier, uh, I was talking about uh, the wives of the astronauts. They were, they, that's their function there, endangered innocents. Uh, they are the story goal. They are the ones that need to be saved, and that is a story goal. Two, in, they are in imminent uh, uh, danger of death or loss. And, and the stakes have to be nothing less than that, as high as stakes can be for, for whatever story you're telling. And can be one person or a group? Yes, provides a strong subplot, an enormously strong subplot. Must be sympathetic. Whoop. Must be sympathetic. They are provides a ticking clock, and a ticking clock we will come and refer to again and again. That is really important. They usually start at the midpoint, the ticking clock. But it means time is running out to accomplish whatever it is the hero is out to accomplish. The ticking clock, zero hour is approaching. Get on it and make it happen. Okay, my example for you here is Kevin the Bird in Up. He is the endangered innocent. Carl and his friends have escaped from evil adversary Charles Muntz's cave and, and his nasty dogs, who are his adversary agents. And now they continue pulling Ellie's and Carl's house the last short distance to Paradise Falls. He's almost there. He's almost in, uh, accomplished his task. <clears throat> uh, uh, Kevin, in their escape from you know, the previous escape, Kevin has been wounded. Kevin was, was basic to their escaping at all and, and, and was wounded, so she's bandaged and resting on the steps. Russell tells Carl about 
the happy times he had with his dad, but they were, but they're far and too few, those, those happy times. And the boy is clearly needing a father figure. And he's Russell more and more with their adventures together. He tried to dismiss him in the beginning. Uh, but more and more, Carl is falling for Russell and seeing Carl's immediate today needs as weighed against the needs of his past and being caught in the past. And all of a sudden, there's a caw in the distance, a high-pitched caw, and Kevin jumps up, and it is her babies. It is one of her babies. They have found the nest, and uh, uh, Kevin is jubilant and runs off, and uh, Russell... And Carl also so excited that they're going to be able to get Kevin home. And as they run, overjoyed, an ominous shadow comes over them that they don't see right away. Of spotlight, a very hot, blinding spotlight, uh, suddenly turns on and nails Kevin the bird who freezes in it. The evil adventurer Munce's huge blimp hovers above, and he's come for Kevin, a live version of that bird. He's got a skeleton in, you know, in his, if you remember, in his museum, in his blimp. They're all dead things and skeletons, and he always wanted to find a live one, and here's a live one, and he's going to get it. <clears throat> he hovers above, and he's come for Kevin. Uh, a net thing made of thick rope shoots out, and, and traps Kevin, so Kevin can't move. And Carl works very, very fast to cut him free, get him out of there as quickly as possible, action sequence. And in the meantime, you know, the off-ramp lowers from the blimp, and down comes the evil adventurer Munts and his sinister pack of adversary agent dogs. I keep repeating that because that is it, whether they are dogs or people, they are serving the will of the, of the, of the adversary. And in these, he's made them, you know, it's a, it's a cartoon, it's, it's animation, and these, these dogs are given the power of speech. So they speak, think, and behave personified like people. But he has a lantern, and to draw Carl away from Kevin the bird, the cruel adventure th adventurer throws the lantern under Ellie's house to set it on fire. This was a very startling, you know, to go this far, as I recall, was a very startling thing to see, whether you were an adult or a child at the time, the first time you saw it. Very cruel. And of course, in an instant, Carl does not wrestle. He cannot wrestle with this decision. He's got to save Ellie's house. It is, it is the mausoleum of all his precious memories and, and life with Ellie. So he runs to try to save the house while the dogs run up to uh, haul away Kevin. The hero pulls Ellie's house uh, aloft. It's still just floating you know, a few feet off the ground because the, the balloons are getting tired and losing helium. But uh, he's able to pull it away and get it away from the fire, and he saves the house. But in the meantime, Munts and his vicious dogs drag Kevin into the bowels of the sinister blimp. And poor Russell, he's devastated. Carl has saved Ellie's house, but he has given up Kevin, the bird, to a cruel fate. And he's obviously, 
he's glad that he saved the house, but he's also feeling like, you know, feeling really badly. And crushed, Russell says to him, you just gave her away. You gave her away. That's how the boy has seen it, because he doesn't understand the pull, you know, of, of within, within Carl and, and, and his experience and everything he has lost when his wife died. And the only thing that really matters to the boy <coughs> is Kevin the bird. And uh, he snaps. He gets angry because of all of this emotion being pressed down upon him. I didn't ask for any of this. Doug the dog tries to soothe Carl, and uh, uh, Carl turns on him. Bad dog, bad dog. Okay, and that's the end of which hero goal sequence here. I don't quite remember. The endangered innocent is, is the story goal. Actually, actually, Kevin has been the endangered innocent in this film for a long time, from about the middle of the, of the second act. <clears throat> he was set up to be the endangered innocent. It's been going on for a long time, but now you see a ticking clock has been sent in motion. Save him quickly or it's going to be too late. In, in imminent danger of death or loss, absolutely. Can be one person or a group. One person provides a strong subplot. You better believe it. Must be sympathetic. Oh, they come, very few come as sympathetic as Kevin is and uh, provides the ticking clock. So, you made it. Uh, there are, in general, between five and seven main characters in, in movies, in movies that work. If you have, as you must have, a hero and an adversary, that means you will have three to five more central characters in order for your story to work. I know there are lots of, uh, of students writing scripts <clears throat> who don't have enough people, who don't have enough of a cast with knowing exactly what their function is, how they are going to serve the story in one of these categories. But now you get to choose. What kind of story do you want your story to be? Okay, uh, uh, is a love interest possible? Does that work? That doesn't work for all stories, you know, and you don't want to push it. Um, a lot of people wait on that. A lot of people, it, it, it's tricky to really make that work. Um, so, okay, a sidekick or no sidekick? We're going to talk about that a little later this evening, as a matter of fact, after the break. Um, but this is it. When you know the paradigm of how the blocks and pieces of the puzzle fit together, and now you've got this, you know what you're looking for when you are looking to create characters for your story. These are the character functions that are served by these, by these characters. You may fight it fine. If you want to fight it for a while, that's fine by me. Uh, Try it on. I think uh, the more you, more movies you go to, the closer you look, I think the more you will see that I am here to ruin the movies for you. <laughs> At least for a short while. Just for a short while. You'll get over it. And you will be able to play that piano like a virtuoso. Okay? Any, any immediate questions right now? 
It's it's usually just one. If you have two people following and doing, it's not a sidekick anymore. It's a, it's a helper follower, two helper follower characters from that category. Then it's like, well, like you know, Ocean's Eleven, that hero, Danny Ocean, he gets a a, a true sidekick who sticks with him all the time, and he's also got all these uh, helper followers going too. So he's got the whole ball of wax, because some plots require that. To rob a casino takes a lot of people and a lot of different skills. But anything else for now? What was the introduction of Kevin the Bird in that one movie? Like, did they always, always start out as an innocent? In Up? Uh, Kevin the Bird was, is the first of the strange friends picked up. By, by Russell, he goes to you know he goes to do number two in the in bushes and he takes he digs the hole and does all the things they taught him in camper school, <clears throat> but this huge bird comes up and eats his candy bar, his chocolate I think he's got or something like that, and uh, and then there's some comedy and romping with 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 Carl and all that stuff, but the thing is immediately after that Doug the dog shows up. And the first thing Doug the dog says is, my master wants me to bring a bird home. I'm going to take this bird prisoner. Can I take your bird prisoner? In other words, Doug the dog is just a sweetheart and doesn't know about being mean. But he is telling us from the first time he arrives, which is very shortly after the time that Kevin has arrived, somebody is out to get Kevin. And he's the master, my master this and my master that. Can I take him home and be a hero? So that is what I mean by it's laid in. It's laid in early. And then during the midpoint sequence, and they're having dinner with, with, with months, and there he's just, uh, Carl is just catching up to the, this is not good. You know, this is a creepy guy and a creepy place, although he was friendly and they, in the beginning. They thought, oh, okay, we got a new friend. But he sees outside the portholes, he sees Kevin bouncing around, having fun and doing things. And then, oh my gosh, you know, if Muntz sees that, Kevin is gone, he's lost right then and there. So again, Kevin is at risk, and that is one of the main reasons that they grab and run. They grab Kevin and run and try to get him out of there. And then it goes on and on. And do you remember <clears throat> what, act, what Act 3 is? Stunning Surprise 2 of Up. Anybody remember? They all have the little fighter jet dogs. Not quite. Not quite. Stunning Surprise 2 of Up is when, is when Carl goes outside and Russell has gotten a few balloons and tied them around himself and he's got this leaf blower or something. And he's in the air and he says, I'm going to go save Kevin. What? Out of the blue, changes everything. The hero's life is never going to be the same again. And then, then what does Carl do? By then he has completed his character growth arc and he gets it. The stuff in his house, yes, it has sentimental meaning to him, but it's just stuff. And he starts throwing it out to, in order to lighten the house so that he can get it back up into the air again and go save Russell and Kevin, which, which he does. He takes, it's the, the metaphor 
is so perfect and so complete. All the stuff he has in that house that means so much to him, the furniture, the, he throws it all away to make it into a, a flying machine yet again, to get it in the air and go after and be the hero who's going to save Russell and Kevin. And metaphorically, he has finally left the past behind and he is committed to a future. And then that's and then act three is this kind of very lovely and elongated obligatory scene. Anything else for now? Thank you for your patience. I know this, this, this was a long, longer one, but uh, there's a lot of juice here, guys. There's a lot of things to think about and to see how all of this fits together. And it's, it's really critical to what we're going to be doing and what you're going to be doing starting next semester, at least with me, writing a feature film. Okay, take a break. Thanks.